Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Alexander DeSanctis of National Review is in for the vacationing Jim Garrity today. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives. And, Alexandra, we are sponsored today by Blinds.com. Right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can get $20 off at Blinds.com when you use the promo code MARTINI. Blinds.com, promo code MARTINI. Much more on that in just a little bit. Let's go to our good martini. This comes to us from the Hartford Current. Three Connecticut high school track and field athletes have filed a federal discrimination complaint against a statewide policy on transgender athletes, saying it has cost them top finishes in competitions and possibly college scholarships. The conservative Christian law firm Alliance Defending Freedom filed the complaint on behalf of the girls Monday with the U.S. Education Department's Office for Civil Rights. It seeks to reverse a Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference rule allowing athletes to compete in sports corresponding with their gender identity. The CIAC says its policy follows a state anti-discrimination law requiring students to be treated in school according to the gender with which they identify. In its complaint, the ADF claims that allowing transgender girls to compete in girls' sports deprives their cisgender, meaning someone who identifies with their birth sex, peers of opportunities for participation, recruitment, and scholarships, and therefore violates Title IX, which assures equal rights for male and female athletes. The law firm says that one of the girls filing the discrimination complaint, Glastonbury junior sprinter Selena Sewell, fears retaliation in light of her mother's complaints to CIAC and local high school officials about the transgender policy. The mother circulated a petition that fell on deaf ears with the Connecticut legislature. And so the argument here, as we've discussed a number of times, Alexander, in the Three Martini Lunch, is that you have biological males. They may be undergoing some sort of hormonal treatment or something like that, but they're competing against biological girls. And whether people like to admit it or not, there are major physiological differences when it comes to size and speed and muscle tone and muscle growth and muscle twitch and that sort of thing. So what do you make of the fact that this is now headed to a federal complaint? Oh, man. I mean, it's good to see that it's coming to something like this and hopefully we'll get some kind of resolution because I think this is one of the huge breaking points of the kind of transgender ideology, in my view. It's one thing to say that an adult who feels like, you know, a woman trapped in a male body or vice versa should be able to do what he or she wants to his own body and, you know, live the way that they want, dress the way that they want. Fine. All well and good up to a point, I would say, although I'm concerned for that person. But if we're now going to have biological males competing against women, this is an anti-woman ideology. It's bad for girls. And it, it's funny that this complaint came up just today because I found out only just last week that the high school, middle and high school I graduated from in Virginia is withdrawing from its athletic conference over a similar policy that was just put in place. All those the schools decided in the conference that biological males will be allowed to compete in girls' sports if they identify as girls. And this is so harmful to young women who are you know, trying to participate in athletics on a, a level playing field against fellow biological females. And it's very clearly unfair. And I think the average person, even if they're somewhat sympathetic to this ideology, would draw the line here. Alexandra, what do you make of the fact that the feminists are pretty quiet on this? Tennis legend Martina Navratilova, who won 18 Grand Slam titles, one of the first major athletes certainly to be openly gay, has been absolutely pilloried by the LGBT community, which she's long been a hero of, for suggesting that it's completely ridiculous for biological males to be competing against biological women. So where are the feminists on this? 
It's a really, really interesting issue. You know, there's some people who are labeled TERFs, TERFs, trans-exclusive, radical feminists. These are women who call themselves feminists, are generally very progressive, but draw the line at things like this because they think it's harmful to women. But I think by and large, the sort of modern feminist movement is so caught up in the progressive agenda, so caught up in intersectionality. They've kind of bought whole hog the idea that transgenderism is now the next big thing and gender identity policy like this is now just sort of part of what the left is supposed to be championing. And I think it's really a sign that the left is going to eat itself alive because these two planks of the platform are inherently contradictory. You can't say that a man can be a woman, but also, you know, feminism means that women are equal and something unique and distinct and worth protecting. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Well, continuing my pattern of awkward transitions to blinds.com, some people are just blind when it comes to the inherent contradictions in this issue. But for many of us, your blinds or whatever you have on your windows is an afterthought. But with brand new made-to-order custom window coverings from blinds.com, you can really transform the look and feel of your entire home. When you need new blinds, there's only one place you need to go, and that's blinds.com. With 15 million windows covered and over 30,000 five-star customer reviews, Blinds.com is America's number one online retailer for affordable, quality, custom window coverings. Whether you're looking for energy efficiency, you've just moved, or you want to refresh the look of your home, Blinds.com makes the whole experience fast and easy. Plus, every order gets free samples, free shipping, and a free online design consultation. Just send them pictures of your house, and they send back custom recommendations from a professional for what will work with your color scheme, furniture, and specific rooms. They'll even send you free samples to make sure that everything looks good in person as it does online, and every order gets free shipping. And here's the best part. If you accidentally mismeasure or pick the wrong color, if you make a mistake, Blinds.com will remake your blinds for free. They've really made it easy for you, so there's no excuse to leave up those mangled blinds. Absolutely right. And I deal with really bad blinds here at the office on a regular basis. Sometimes folks who work different hours and certainly over the weekends, they'll leave the blinds open in front of the windows where I sit and the sun can just be absolutely slamming in. And then you try to tug the blind cord and it goes down a couple notches and a couple notches more and a couple notches more. There's much better options and blinds.com is the way to go. And for a limited time, three martini lunch listeners get $20 off at blinds.com. When you use the promo code Martini, that's blinds.com, promo code Martini for $20 off faux wood blinds, cellular shades, roller shades, and more. Blinds.com, promo code Martini. Rules and restrictions apply. All right, Alexander, let's move to our bad Martini now. And the New York Times got responses from 21 Democratic presidential candidates on 18 different questions. We know that next week we're going to have 20 candidates on stage, 10 per night. And Jim and I talked about the breakdown last Friday of how Elizabeth Warren seems to be at the kiddie table. We'll see if that plays out well for her because she'll probably get more attention or whether she's going to be uh, left on the side when it comes to the second debate with the people polling much higher than everybody else being on the same stage. But these 18 questions from the New York Times There's really not any of them that would be considered challenging for a Democrat here. Some of them actually deal with issues. Some of them are just really superfluous. So the 18 questions, I'll read a few of them here. In an ideal world, would anyone own handguns? Would your focus be improving the Affordable Care Act or replacing it with single payer? Do you think it's possible for the next president to stop climate change? Do you think Israel meets international standards of human rights? Who is your hero and why? How many hours of sleep do you get a night? Do you think illegal immigration is a major problem in the United States? 
Where would you go on your first international trip as president? Describe the last time you were embarrassed. Do you support or oppose the death penalty? Are you open to expanding the size of the Supreme Court? What's your comfort food on the campaign trail? What do you do to relax? And finally, does anyone deserve to have a billion dollars? Alexandra, as uh, most folks know, uh, your focus a lot of the time at National Review is on the abortion debate. And I know there's a lot of issue questions here that probably could have filled 18 and maybe left abortion on the sideline, although given how big of an issue it is among the Democrats right now, it's hard to imagine that it was left off of here unintentionally. But when you've got half of these questions or maybe a third of these questions dealing with really, really irrelevant things like how you relax and what you eat, what do you make of the times not even going there? Oh, it's incredibly frustrating. And I think it's so obviously ideologically motivated. That's the thing that bothers me about it. I mean, if we're going to have a profile of, you know, where all the Democratic candidates stand on the Mueller report or a profile of their views on immigration policy, fine. But if you're going to sit down and write out 18 questions, which are intensely issue focused, you shouldn't be giving them just sort of a nice little platform to spout their platitudes about, you know, illegal immigration or about President Trump having committed crimes in office. You should be actually pressuring them to address the issues that are in the news right now and that are divisive. And the New York Times loves talking about the abortion debate when they're slamming Alabama for passing its abortion ban. They're all too happy to write these pieces about, you know, the quote unquote heartbeat bills where the fetal heartbeats really just embryonic pulsing and slamming Georgia and slamming Louisiana for for passing these pro-life bills. But suddenly when it's time to talk to Democratic candidates about issues, abortion is nowhere to be found. And I'm not one to say that Everyone's got to care about this issue as much as I do, or we have to talk about it 24-7. But if it's in the news and we're going to cover it, and we have 20 people here, 21 people lined up running for president and talking about issues, I think ought to be asked about this. And the reason that they weren't is because the New York Times knows the Democratic stance, the hardline stance on abortion on demand is deeply unpopular, and they don't want to force them to talk about it. What do you make of the fact that these questions are so soft? The Republicans, if this was 2016, I don't know how many would have actually responded to the New York Times, but you can pretty much guess that they wouldn't have asked Ted Cruz who your hero is or an ideal world would anyone own handguns and things like that. These aren't questions really designed to get politicians to give an answer that they're not ready with a canned response for. The point of a good interview is to get somebody to say something they haven't said before. And the New York Times uh, is making it pretty clear here, it would seem, that they're here to pretty much grab the pom-poms for whoever emerges from this primary. I mean, they're essentially here just giving all of them. It's the short form version of doing a lengthy softball profile of every candidate. They just kind of drag them into the studio, ask them a bunch of easy questions and paint this nice glowing picture of who they are as a person so that America can get to know you on the campaign trail. None of this is challenging. None of this is difficult. Democratic politicians on abortion are out of step with their own voters by most polling metrics. You know, their abortion on demand until birth paid for by taxpayers is not a popular position. But if, you know, we're just going to sort of talk about the Mueller report or tech giants like Facebook and Amazon, sure, the average American's happy. They're all ears. They're ready to listen to what you think. Um, Clearly, this is just, I think, essentially paid advertising or unpaid advertising, rather. And finally, uh, the media will jump on the abortion issue. And you tweeted about this earlier today because President Trump, in launching his reelection campaign in Orlando on Tuesday night, was talking about the Democrats being extreme on abortion uh, all the way up to birth and even mentioned Ralph Northam's comments, the governor of Virginia, who said live on the radio that if a baby survives an abortion is outside of the mother, that the baby would be kept comfortable and then a conversation would happen uh, to determine what would happen next. And uh, the liberals pretend that President Trump and, and others who bring that up are absolutely lying and distorting. 
Yeah, and this is so frustrating to me. My my thesis over the last several months has continued to develop. I, I think that, you know, the media is so responsible for why Americans don't know what's going on with abortion policy, don't know where Democrats stand on this issue. And people claim that Trump is lying anytime he references those comments. And to be fair, the president often puts it in terms of Democrats saying that babies can be executed after birth, which is again, not what we're talking about, but letting an infant die on a table from lack of medical care, which is what Democratic politicians support and you know refuse to ban when they voted against the Born Alive bill this past spring. That's essentially the same thing, right? So Trump's words might not be exactly precise, but the fact of the matter is Democrats are very, very radical on this and they get so much cover from the media time and again, whether it's misconstruing what Ralph Northam said or just refusing to ask about the issue at all. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Alexandra. And Joe Biden continues to be the front runner for the Democrats. He is going to be front and center in that second debate on, I guess it's MSNBC next week. But Joe Biden keeps saying some weird things. He's flipped and flopped and flipped and flopped, I believe, on the Hyde Amendment. He's flipped and flopped on whether China is a major challenge for the United States. Uh, But his big thing seems to be hey, man, we're so polarized in this country that we just got to get back to an era when even if you disagreed with people, you still were able to work together and get stuff done because that's what mature, responsible Americans do. And there's something to be said for that argument, I suppose. NBC News with this version of the story. This is getting a lot of attention. Former Vice President Joe Biden, in recalling the civility of the Senate during his days as a lawmaker in the 1970s and 80s on Tuesday, cited his experience with two segregationist Southern senators. Speaking at a fundraiser at New York City's Carlisle Hotel, Biden brought up the names of Senators James Eastland of Mississippi and Herman Talmadge of Georgia, both Democrats who were staunchly opposed to desegregation. Eastland chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee when Biden entered the Senate, a committee he would later chair. I was in a caucus with James O. Eastland, Biden said. He never called me boy. He always called me son. Whatever that means. Of Talmadge, Biden said he was one of the meanest guys I ever knew. You go down the list of all these guys. Well, guess what? At least there was some civility. We got things done. We didn't agree on much of anything. We got things done. We got it finished, but today you look at the other side and you're the enemy, not the opposition, the enemy. We don't talk to each other anymore. Now, Alexander, I think Biden's made it pretty clear here that he didn't agree with them on segregationist policies, but it's still pretty weird that he says, man, I wish we could go back to the 1970s where even the segregationists and I could get along. And he's not really getting much blowback for that. He certainly is not going to be criticized for it. And that's obviously a a huge point and a huge problem here. You know, I don't think that Joe Biden is pro-segregation. I don't think that that's what he meant. But I think it's sort of another example of several we've seen over the last couple of months after Biden got into this race that it seems like he's kind of not fully with it some of the time. If you watch his interviews or you read the transcript of some of his exchanges with reporters, he seems to be all over the place. His sentences don't always connect. And I don't know if he's quite the politician that he once was, not quite as coherent as he used to be. That is a very fair point, Alexander. He has definitely seemed more fuzzy, and it's something that Jim has mentioned a couple of times already just in these very early days of the Biden campaign, so something to watch for sure. Obviously, you mentioned the double standard. That's kind of the point of having this as the crazy martini is the fact that Biden's not getting blowback for this. What do you think the reaction would be if this was a Republican and a Republican leading the pack for the presidential nomination uh, saying something at least partially favorable towards working with segregationists? You got to believe it would be, you know, a news cycle for at least a full day. But instead, we're just going to kind of sweep it under the rug. I hardly even noticed that this happened. I think I saw maybe one story on it on Twitter and no one's really commenting on it. No one seems to be writing long profiles about, you know, Joe Biden's secret racist sympathies, which is clearly what we'd be getting if it was, you know, a Republican member of the House, for example. 
Oh, no doubt. No doubt whatsoever. But Biden is getting uh, live coverage on at least CNN, I noticed this week. Bernie did a little bit with his uh, how dare you use socialism as a pejorative speech. Uh, So keep doing that. Keep doing that, Democrats. Alexandra, great to have you with us as always. Thanks for your time today, and we'll talk to you down the road. Absolutely. Alexander DeSanctis of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. And don't forget to visit our friends over at Blinds.com. Right now, three Martini Lunch listeners can get $20 off when you use the promo code MARTINI. And tune in again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.